Luke chapter 15. The first verse of the chapter says this, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained. That would be the religious leaders of his day. They complained saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them saying, Now, after this, Jesus, what he does, he tells this parable of a lost sheep. Then he tells a parable of a lost coin. And then look at verse 11. (coughs) Then Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. I want you to keep that in mind. A certain man had two sons because you might notice, even in this little Gospel of Luke that we gave you, that the subtitle says the parable of the prodigal son. You've probably all heard this story before. But the truth is, what the Scripture says, Jesus starts off this story and He says a man, a certain man, had two sons. Now, Jesus would tell stories all the time. He would tell stories that the people who he was telling them to would recognize what was going on. So in their mind, the story was self-explanatory. It was, it was set in their culture and their context. They understood exactly what he meant by he said, usually. He, he was making a clear point to these people. He was wanting to have these religious people who didn't believe that he was God the Son. He wanted these religious people, as well as all those who were hearing him, to understand that he, was, he came to seek and save that which is lost. So he tells the story, starting in verse 12, and he says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided, them to, uh, divided to them his livelihood. Now we read that and we might think, oh, kind of a selfish kid. He wants some, some money from dad so he can, he can go party. That's really what he's looking for. But you have to understand that in the Jewish culture, the culture that Jesus would have been speaking to, they would have saw asking for inheritance equal to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead already. So this is bigger than just kind of immature, selfish greed. This was a son in his foolishness was basically saying, I really don't want anything from, I really don't want you, I just want your money. I wish you were dead already so I could have my inheritance right now. Now, if you're a parent, you can imagine what it would feel like to have your child say that to you. I mean, I have, I've had my kids, a couple of my kids, when they were really angry, usually when they were about five, say to me, I hate you, Dad. And even then, it was, it was partially cute, but it was also really painful. To think that your child is rejecting you, doesn't want you, is a big deal. And so when Jesus says this story, when he says, the younger son says, give me my inheritance now, everyone who heard understood, he was basically saying, Father, I wish you were dead. So the father divides <coughs> the portions to his sons. And it says that not many days after, verse 13, the younger son gathered all together and he journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. Then he went and he joined himself to the citizens of that land and he sent, they, he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now again, feeding pigs isn't a glorious or glamorous job, but you have to understand again from a Jewish context, 
pigs, swine, or unclean animals. Not only did you not eat them, you stayed away from them. So he, in telling this story in a Jewish context, people would have thought, wow, that's, that's pretty desperate. If you're joining yourself to a non-Jewish person and then actually going to feed their pigs, you're defiling yourself in two ways. You're going lower and then lower still. And he's in this situation because he spent everything that he got from his father. There's nothing left. And as often happened in that day, famines could come easily. You have one bad crop, a disease, wipes out all the food, like the potato famine that happened in Ireland. And there's nothing for anybody. And in that area, there was nothing for anybody. He has no money, he has no food, he has no friends. And he's in a place where he's thinking, what am I going to do? I'm desperate. I'm absolutely desperate. And so it says in verse 16, that he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, probably carob pods, and no one gave him anything. So he's in a place where he would easily have eaten the food that the pigs ate. Notice it says he would have. In other words, he could not, because I don't know if you know anything about pigs, but they're quite violent. You never want to get near a pig when it's eating. Seriously. Pigs are known to turn on, their, on the people that form them. They're pretty horrible little animals. And so he couldn't even get in there to eat pig food. He would, would have done it, but he couldn't do it. So he is as desperate as he can possibly be. And it says in verse 17, but when he came to himself. Do you know what that means? It means when he realized, I've been an idiot. I've really messed things up. When he finally saw reality for what it was, what have I done? He had this thought. He says, Verse 17, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now he's thinking to himself, okay, there's no way dad's going to take me back. I said, I want you dead. I dishonored him. I've taken all the inheritance that was meant for me. But maybe if I go back, he'll hire me to work for him. And that's what it means. It, it doesn't mean he's asking to be a slave. He's just thinking, I know I'll earn what my father has to give. If I can just go back to him in humility, I'll earn what my father has to give, and that will make me okay. And it's his desperation that's bringing him to this place. He's, it's his desperate circumstance that is humbling him and making him realize, man, something has to change. And so what happens? It says in verse 20, And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, again, we, we would see this and we'd go, oh, that's, what a beautiful thing. The father would run out. But you have to understand a couple of things. Number one, when it says, when he was a long way off, his father saw him. What does that tell you? His father was looking for him. This was not a bitter father who was standing back and saying, oh, stupid kid. You know what? And maybe grieving privately, but trying to just get on with his life. This, there's a picture of a father kind of going out where the son left and looking. Is he, is he coming yet? Is he coming yet? A, a father who pursues a prodigal. And when he sees him, it says that he didn't wait for him to get home. He ran to him. He ran out to meet him. And understand again, in this day, Jewish men never ran. 
It was completely undignified. You just didn't do that, especially noble men, especially people who had wealth. Servants might run if they were called to do something or if they had to chase an animal or something, but you didn't run if you're a noble person. So he's just kind of thrown aside decorum. He says, I don't really care how I look. My son's come. And he ran to him, and he didn't just say, what do you want? (laughs) He ran to him, and he grabbed him, and he kissed him. The Bible says he had compassion, which means his heart was moved in a way that he couldn't help but act. That's what compassion is. And so what happens is, his son says, father, begins to say what he had kind of thought in his mind, I know exactly what I'll say to dad. He says, father, this is still verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But what happens? But the father said to his servants, it almost ignores what the son says, basically, says to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, was, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now, here's the reality. This son who knew he, didn't, he wasn't worthy to be called the son of his father, this son who thought to himself, okay, I know what I have to do. I need to go back and to get right with my father, I need to say, I'll work for you. I'll earn my keep from now on. Forget about the inheritance that you would just give to me out of your love for me. Forget about that. I'll earn it from now on. That's what I'll do. And the father, listen, refuses to treat him as anything less than not just a son, but the favored son. By putting a robe, the best robe on him, he's honoring him above anyone else in that house. By putting a ring on his finger, this would be like a signet ring, which show that you have authority over the house. He's restoring him not just to the position he had before, but to even a higher position. A place that is not just what he, didn't, he lost that he didn't deserve, but something he didn't deserve and as much beyond that. He's refusing to see him anything else. So we have this in the story, this first younger son, and we just see the foolishness of a boy. The immaturity of someone who thinks, I want what I want, and I wish my father was dead. And we also see the love of the father. A father who, would, who would, wouldn't care if he was seen as a fool would run to reach out to the son and not just bring him back in the home, but restore him to a favored position. And we read this story and we go, gosh, that's a really cool story. What a great story. No wonder there's so many like Hollywood movies that kind of try to follow this theme, you know, the rags to riches and people who have, who, who have you know, done something wrong. They realize that, that they were bad and they get everything right in the end. And we think, oh, that's kind of cool. But we look at that and we think, that's kind of cool. But is that just sort of cheesy, a bit Hollywood-ish? Does that actually happen? In fact, maybe what, you're one of those people that you thought, well, I did similar things, but when I went back to my dad, he said, clear off. I want nothing to do with you anymore. That happens. And we can wonder, does this this really happen? Are there actually fathers out there who would do this for their kids? And we would think, well, I'd hope so. Maybe those of us that are dads would think, I'd hope I'd be this kind of a dad. But more so, and this is the thing that Jesus was wanting to get across. This is why Jesus was telling this parable. He he wanted them to think there's there's a father in heaven. That this is how God is. 
God's like this. He welcomes back prodigals. He throws his arms around them. He puts a robe of honor on them, a, a, a signet ring on their finger. He kills the fatted calf in celebration and says, my son was dead and is alive again. He does that. God saves prodigals. The story doesn't end there, though. It doesn't end with the loving father just accepting back his rebellious son. What happens is as they are beginning to make merry, we see in verse 25 that now his older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come because you're, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out to him and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, uh, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now, in one sense, we have compassion for this guy, don't you? I mean, have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever heard a story like that or, or known of a situation like that? Maybe even a, a family situation that you have where your sibling it seems to be the one that's the screw-up, but they're the one that mom and dad pay attention to. And you think, God, it doesn't seem fair. I'm trying to be the good kid here. But remember, Jesus is telling this parable because these religious people are thinking, hey, it's not right that Jesus hangs out with sinners. It's not right. If you're really a good person, you should only hang out with good people. You shouldn't hang out with bad people like that. And he's telling the story because these guys think they're good. They think they deserve what their heavenly Father has to offer them. And so he's angry, as they were. He's angry because he thinks, you know what, something's, I deserve something better. What he doesn't recognize is that he's in just as much in need of restoration as his little brother. I mean, think about this, guys. When the younger son says, give me my inheritance, I wish you were dead, the older son basically says, I'm not going into the party, I refuse. The younger son, when he actually does come back, he can't even get all the way home before the father comes pursuing him. Here you have the older son refuses to go in and the father comes out pursuing him. The difference is the younger son came to a place where he thought, man, I need to get things sorted out. I need to get right with the Father, even if that means I have to earn it. He couldn't earn it, but he thought, even if I have to earn it, I need to do this. Well, the older son was angry because he thought he did earn it. He already deserved the Father's love. You see, whether we want to admit it or not, even if we think we're the older son, we're all the younger son. See, all of us need to be in a place where we recognize 
whether we're the one that's ran away and said, I want anything to do with God, or we're the ones that thought, hey, God should accept me as I am. I'm a good person. Either way, what we really need is the Father's provision for us. We need the Father's love. It's interesting, too, because listen to how the Father responds to him. In verse 31, he said, and he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. Remember, he's already giving given the son his inheritance. And it's, it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother is dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about the language that Jesus uses here to tell this story. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that the father says, He didn't display the father saying, hey, my son was in rebellion and now he's got things right. He doesn't say, my son wasted all our money, but now he's back and we're just glad he's safe and sound. He says, my son was dead and is now alive. Now, you think about this. Jesus is telling the story. The same Jesus who has been in the Gospels, he has been before this time and he will, after this time, predict his own death and resurrection. It wasn't something that was a surprise. It wasn't just a situation where everybody thought everything was going along swimmingly, there was no problems, and then Jesus, unfortunately, gets arrested and gets crucified. He said he was going to be crucified. He said that's why he came. John's gospel tells us that Jesus says, no one takes my life, I lay it down of myself, and I take it back up again of myself. So when Jesus tells a story to these religious people and to the crowd that's hearing, he's wanting them to think death and resurrection because he knows what he's going to do. Now listen, we're almost done. The Apostle Paul, the one that Clayton was mentioning, the one who was Saul, who then had a radical change, he became Paul, the one who had persecuted the servants of God and became a servant of God, that Paul, Paul wrote these words later on. He wrote, even when we, that's all of us, all all the people that he's writing to who are now Christians, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, the Bible teaches that in that historical event, when Jesus was crucified, Jesus who claimed to be God's only begotten Son, Jesus who predicted His death and resurrection, when He was crucified, the Bible teaches that our sins were laid upon Him. That's why the Bible shows there's three hours of darkness on that Good Friday, at three hours when God is judging Jesus for our sin. He's absorbing what we should have to take. But after that, freed, uh, after that death, he's, he's buried. He's definitely seen to be dead. There's no doubt about that. And he's buried into a tomb. And just as he said three days later, he comes back to life. He bodily rises from the dead. And the Bible teaches us that his death pays for our sin and his resurrection guarantees our forgiveness, guarantees that God will consider us innocent if we put our faith in Jesus. He'll justify us. He'll render us innocent. 
Now, the reason we get so excited about Easter is because Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, that means all these things that He said and all these things that He did are true. You know, I've been, I've been a Christian since 1987. Some of you weren't even born then. And, and this morning, I was thinking about this again. I was thinking about this afresh. I was actually reading the story of a Muslim man who became a Christian. Amazing story. And as I'm reading the story, and it was really the resurrection of Jesus, he, he was a, he's a, a very scholarly man, and as he was looking into the historical facts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he became convinced he couldn't deny it and fought and wrestled with that, those facts for years. He knew it would cost him his family. He knew his family would potentially disown him. He knew there would be pain involved if he'd started following Jesus. But he couldn't deny the facts, and he eventually committed his life to Jesus and put his faith in what Jesus had done through him through his death and resurrection. And as I'm reading the story again afresh, and just reading this book just for my own edification, as I'm reading the story afresh, it hit me afresh. Man, it's all true. It's all true. He's actually alive. Everything that we believe as Christians, all the book says, it's true. This is not some story or idea. This is fact. God who created the world, we know He's real because He pierced history. He came as a person of Jesus. Historical fact. That God who pierced history died. He lived a perfect life. No one could accuse Him of anything. Even the ones who crucified Him, all they could accuse Him of was claiming to be God. That's it. That's why they crucified Him. The ones who knew Him most could not say He did anything wrong. He was that perfect, perfect sacrifice. Fact. Historical fact. Three days later, after that happens, he arises from the dead. He's not just seen by a couple guys or people hear rumors. We're talking every one of the disciples saw him at least once. Some of them saw him three times, four times. And there was one time when 500 people saw and heard Jesus speak after he rose from the dead at the exact same time. And dozens of them watched him as he physically ascended into heaven. And that fact so change them that they are all willing to suffer and die for what just years or weeks before they thought, ah, this stuff isn't really true. Why? Because it was a fact that he had risen from the dead. It's a fact. See, the prodigal son isn't just a great story. (laughs) It illustrates fact. It illustrates an eternal truth. It illustrates a reality. God is real. He has shown himself. He has made a way that we can be right with him, that prodigals can come home and older brothers can be humbled and restored. He has risen from the dead. This is not wishful thinking. This is fact. And he's calling you to believe the facts. He's calling you to trust him. He's calling you to trust him.